Welcome to Convention Pulpit, Wesleyan Voices Past and Present, brought to you through the Ministry of Inner Church Holiness Convention. Visit our website for an entire library of great sermons and more information on this ministry, www.ihconvention.com. While he was living, Albert Barr was one of the most sought-after evangelists. But in fact, he never considered himself to be an evangelist. On his business card advertising his ministry was the word helper. In one of his sermons, he would always say, If I understand the gifts of the Spirit correctly, my gift is the gift of help. This is a very riveting message entitled, The Mercy of the Lord Endures Forever. I know you will enjoy this wonderful message. Psalms 136. Now what I'm going to do, I'm going to read and ask you to help me to read. And the way we'll do this, sort of responsive reading, but maybe a little different, if, as I'm reading through this 136th division of the Psalms, if I at any time should come to the phrase, for his mercy endureth forever, I would like for you to read that part, all right? If you just happen to see that anywhere in there, I'll stop and let you read that. Are we ready? Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good. O oh, give thanks unto the God of gods. O oh, give thanks to the Lord of lords. To him alone, who alone doeth great wonders. To him that by wisdom made the heavens. To him that stretched out the earth above the waters. To him that made great lights. The sun to rule by day, the moon and stars to rule by night, to him that smote Egypt in their firstborn, and brought out Israel from among them, with a strong hand and with a stretched out arm, to him which divided the Red Sea into parts. And made Israel to pass through the midst of it. But overthrew Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea. To him which led his people through the wilderness. To him which smote great kings. And slew famous kings. Sihon, king of the Amorites. And Og, the king of Bashan, and gave their land for an heritage, even an heritage unto Israel his servant. 
who remembered us in our low estate and hath redeemed us from our enemies who giveth food to all flesh O oh, give thanks unto the God of heaven. And I would like to ask you before we pray and are seated, what would you say is the theme of this psalm? <laughs> Heavenly Father, I thank you for your great mercy. And we thank you for the gospel message, certainly for this aspect of it. Thy mercy endureth forever. And we pray this afternoon that you will help us to exalt and to revel in thy great mercy, which endures forever. For Jesus' sake, amen. You may be seated. Now, I am very conscious that if you properly preach the gospel, that you must forever keep gospel truths in balance. For every gospel truth, there is a balancing gospel truth. One of the great joys of being a minister of the gospel is to preach the good news of salvation. Today, I would like to stress simply the mercy of the Lord. I would like to share. Doing so, I'm very conscious that there is a flip side to what I will say today, and our time will not allow me to properly balance the other side of the coin, and I know that there is one, and I want you to know that. I know that every day that one continues in sin, that there are entanglements and there are scars that uh, may never be totally worked out in this life. I know that. And so before I ever begin, I want you to know that I am only, and I am aware that I am only, presenting one side of a coin, and yet I'm presenting a very wonderful side of a gospel truth, and that is that the mercy of the Lord endureth forever. Seems like David reveled in the mercy of the Lord, and he had good reason to. You remember the story, David, the sweet psalmist of Israel, the David, the shepherd king, David, the warrior, David, the apple of God's eye, had fallen into sin. He had sent his troops out under Joab to besiege the city of Rabbah, and he had stayed home, which was not normally his want, but he had stayed home and let the army go out and do the battle, and he got into trouble. He's up walking on the rooftop of the palace one day, looks down into a neighboring courtyard, and there sees a beautiful woman bathing. His heart is filled with lust. Being the king, he commands that she be brought to him. Adultery is committed. Later, word is brought to him from Bathsheba that she is with child. And so, to try to cover his sin, David calls, uh, sends a message to Joab, and has Uriah, the husband of Bathsheba, sent home from the war, ostensibly to bring, ostensibly to bring in a report of what the, how the battle goes, he comes in and gives a good report, and after David goes through some palaver and uh, accepts the report, then he tells him, well, now you go on home and, uh, and just kind of relax, make yourself at home for a few days. But he discovers, the report is brought to him, that Uriah slept on his doorstep that night, never even went into his own home and to his wife. 
And so the next day David asked him about that, and Uriah says, uh, the armies of Israel are out in the field, camped in tents, fighting the battles for the king. And God forbid that I would come home and, and uh, make myself at home and enjoy the pleasures of home while God's people are out fighting the battles. David tried everything. He sent, uh, he catered meals in. He sent, uh, he tried to get him drunk. Uriah had more character drunk than David had sober. So finally, when he could not cover his sin in this manner, he gave Uriah a message to carry back to Joab and sent him back, Uriah not knowing that he was carrying his own death warrant. For the instructions in the letter to Commander Joab were, I want you to put Uriah into a situation, even if it's poor military tactics, put him in the hottest part of the battle, put him in a situation where it's guaranteed that he will be killed. Joab followed, even though it was very poor military maneuvering by a very skillful general. But to follow the commands of his king, he set up a very uh, unwise situation, put Uriah right in the front of the battle, sent the men on an incursion that was unwise, and Uriah, as well as a number of other men, were killed. And now the message comes back to David, Uriah is dead, a number of other soldiers are dead, but Uriah is dead. And David, in almost sickening hypocrisy, says, Well, now you tell Joab not to let it bother him, that, uh, you know, the sword takes the good and the bad, and it's just the way battles are, and that's the way wars are, and you tell him that's all right. And then after a few days of mourning, he sends and brings Bathsheba to his home, and she becomes his wife. And he thinks that he has it all covered until God, of course, speaks to the prophet Nathan. And Nathan comes in and tells him a story. He said there was a man who had great flocks and herds. He was rich. He had a neighbor that was a poor man and had only one little lamb. It was not livestock to him. It was a pet. He slept with this little lamb. It was the only thing he had in the world. And yet when visitors came to visit the rich man, rather than taking one from his vast herds, he sent over and took the one lamb from the poor man and had it butchered and served to his company. And in indignation, David says, a man will die for doing something like this. And with that prophetic courage, it's rare amongst us today. The prophet looks at him and says, thou art the man. And then, in spite of all of this sin of adultery and murder and deceit, that heart of David that had made him the apple of God's eye sprang again to the forefront, and David, in repentance, acknowledged his sin and cried out to God and discovered that the mercy of the Lord endureth forever. And from that time on, it seems more than ever David would over and over again, in psalm after psalm, he would magnify the mercy of the Lord. And I simply would like to do the same today. I would like you to know that I am convinced that it is part of our Wesleyan Armenian heritage that nobody seeks God in vain. There are no impossible cases with our God. 
Now, I know that what I'm going to say today that some will not agree with me, and I understand that, and I have tried to make it plain in this meeting that I know that I do not have the right to demand that you agree with me. All I ask is a fair hearing. But I am absolutely convinced that the Bible teaches that no one seeks God in vain. No one, no one, absolutely no one seeks our God in vain. That uh, Jesus walked through this world and found impossible cases nowhere. No one seeks God in vain. There are no impossible situations with our God. His mercy endureth forever. I must tell you that I become a little righteously indignated with some things that I hear propagated as gospel truth. I confess to you that I'm weary of years of counseling, young and old, who come to me, and they have been convinced by what I believe is poor preaching, that they have crossed some deadline, that they have grieved the Holy Ghost, and that they cannot find God. And I want you to know something, that this evangelist doesn't believe that. Now hear me out, and it's fine. I like to preach when it's quiet. <laughs> I do not believe that, people. And I confess to you that I become righteously indignated when I see suffering humanity seeking God, but convinced God will not save them. Just a few weeks ago, an older lady that I know, a lady who has served God all of her adult life, her, she and her husband were for years song evangelists. She, she served God in many capacities, a good and godly holiness woman. But just a few weeks ago, she tried to commit suicide. I know what her problem was. I knew as soon as I heard. Because about once a year, her husband has come to me. She's come to me for counsel down through the years. About once a year, I don't understand what cycles may be involved and such like. But about once a year, he said, she thinks in the deep despair that back when she was a teenager, she grieved God and that she can never be right with God. And she would come, and her, she and her husband, and we would search the scriptures, and we would cry together, and we'd bring out the promises of God, that whosoever cometh unto me, I will in no wise cast out. And people, that either means eternal security, or it means that no one seeks God in vain. And so uh, she would come, and we would pray, and God would reassure her heart and bless her, and she would shout and revel in the, in the mercy of God, and she'd do well for about another year. And then it would sink upon her again. And I want you to know I become angry with a doctrine that teaches that. It is not so, people. No one seeks God in vain. But do you understand that if you convince someone that they cannot be saved, you have effectively damned them? If they do not believe they can be saved, they cannot. He who cometh unto God must believe that he is, that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. And these horror stories that we sometimes preach of people coming to the altar and crying and seeking God only to discover that God won't have them are contrary to Scripture. Okay. Brother Bard, doesn't the Bible teach an unpardonable sin for which there is no forgiveness that to commit it is to be damned above sod? Yes, it does. And that's an awesome truth and ought to make all of us walk very carefully before our God. Does not the Bible teach that there is grieving of the Spirit and, and, that, and, and, and that there is such a thing as crossing a deadline? Yes, it does. 
Yes, it does. And the last thing I would want, it would be exactly the opposite of what I want to get across today if what I preached in any way made anyone careless with God. But people, you will not find those people who have crossed a deadline or blasphemed God. You will not find them weeping at our altars. You will not find them seeking God. They couldn't care less about God. To any extent that you have a hunger for God whatsoever, it's because God put it there. And God's not playing games. And God's not taunting. If you have any hunger for God whatsoever, it's because God wants to meet your need. It may be, yes, it is true, all of us have seen people who have sought God and not found him, but it is not because God would not save them. It may be they've come up against light that they're not willing to walk in. It may be that they've come up against the truths that they're not willing to accept. It may be that God's pointed out necessities of restitution or confession or apology that they're not willing to make. It may be, it just may be that they've played fast and loose with their faith and they've made shipwreck of their faith and now they find it impossible to believe God. It is not that God would not save them, but God cannot save them for they cannot believe. I've seen so many people play this game over the years that it was easier to get forgiveness than it was to get permission and so they go out and just do their own thing and have their fling and then when they're through they come and they repent and they get back to God until the next time they want to have a little prodigality and now they've played that game so often till they no longer believe in themselves. And that is a horrid, treacherous, fearful condition to get into. But the idea that someone would seek and cry out to a God whose mercy endures forever and have him turn a deaf ear is not scriptural. And we need to be careful about that kind of thing. The mercy of the Lord Endure it forever. Now to the sinner that means that no matter what your need is, if you are here today and you are not in victory, no matter what your need is, God is sufficient for it. There are no impossible cases with our God. I know that there is a doctrine abroad in the land that teaches that before God ever created the world, that he predestined, some to be saved and some to be lost. And that if you are among those who are predestined or foreordained to be saved, you will be saved no matter what. And that if you were amongst that unfortunate number, the vast majority who were foreordained or predestined to be lost, you will be lost no matter what. People, that flies in the teeth of everything we know about God. The Bible does teach a predestination and it does teach a foreordination, but it does not mean that. It does not mean that. I heard a preacher, a very well-known radio preacher, if I named him, I'm sure his name would be familiar to most, if not all of you. He sometimes on his radio broadcast answers questions. Someone wrote in a question. He had been dealing with this very subject, and he believed very strongly in, in predestination of an interpretation that consigned some people to hell before the world was ever created and some to heaven. And so someone wrote in a letter, and I'm sure they must have been being facetious. Surely no one would really mean this. But in the letter which he read on the radio, they said, Do you mean that if I am predestined, foreordained to go to heaven, that I have to go to heaven if I don't want to? He said, If you are foreordained to go to heaven, God will take you to heaven if he has to drag you through the pearly gates with a log chain hooked behind a tractor. People, nobody going to heaven that way. If you go to heaven, it'll be because you respond to the tender mercies of God. And if you are lost, you will never be able to blame our God. 
It'll be because you rejected those mercies. Not that he would not save you. People know one going to heaven that way. This was a common doctrine even in the days of the Wesley revival and Charles Wesley penned the song with biting sarcasm. We no longer sing it. Maybe we ought to. But the words, at least in part, went like this. The righteous God consigned men over to their doom, then sent the Savior of mankind to damn them from the womb, to damn for doing not that which they could not do, for not believing the report of that which was not true. O oh God, that any child of thine should so horribly think of thee. Lo, I my every hope resign, if all may not find grace with thee. And the fact is, people, nobody will ever point their finger at God and blame him for their lost condition. His mercy endureth forever. You don't know how wicked I've been, Brother Barr. You don't know what I've gotten involved. Don't need to know. I know there are no impossible cases with my God. His mercy endureth forever. I referred last night, but I think I'll just read it again while I have it here in front of me. You remember one of those lists in the Bible of sins. 1 Corinthians 6, 9, Paul writes this very wicked, uh, this Christian group in a very wicked city. And he says, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. Pretty sorry list of people. And such were some of you, <laughs> Corinthian Christians. But ye are washed but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. There are no impossible cases with our God. But I think to this group this afternoon, I would like to stress another implication of this truth, and that is not only are you not an impossible case, but it means that that prayer that you've been praying for so long, that unsaved son or daughter, that wayward spouse, that friend or family member that's gone so far in sin, and the devil has told you it's a hopeless case, no need to pray anymore, they've made shipwreck, it's too much entangled, too much uh, damage now, they could never get back to God, God could never straighten out that mess. I would like to remind you today, the mercy of the Lord endureth forever. There are no impossible cases with our God. And I would wish that this morning the effect of the message by the help of the Spirit would to help drive us to our knees in a renewed prayer life for those that we stand, that, that we've carried before the throne of God with assurance they are not impossible with our God. You don't know how far my son's gone, preacher. You don't know what they've done. I wouldn't want to tell you how they live. I wouldn't want you to know how they've made shipwreck, how they're entangled in their lives. Oh, so ugly. Oh, so wicked. But they are not hopeless with our God. I have four children. I love them deeply. One of them is adopted. I don't remember which one, but one of them is adopted. <laughs> But I, I, I love them with all of my heart. My oldest son, I was teaching at Hope Sound. I was a very, very busy man. Way too busy, and you can get too busy. I was too busy in the Lord's work, and I nearly lost my children. <laughs> I 
And I don't know whether you would agree with my philosophy or not, but I am convinced that if I bring a thousand souls to Jesus and I lose my children, I've made a real bad deal. And I want my children to know that if I am ever called upon to choose between my children and my God, I will choose my God. But that is the only thing I will ever choose over my children. If I am called upon to choose between my children and my ministry, I will choose my children. I'm not talking about covering in their sin. I'm not talking in any way about padding over their any rebellion. I'm not, but I'm saying I want them to know that they are the most important thing in my life next to God and that I am determined as much as is possible in a parent to take them to heaven with me. But I've not always realized that as I do today. And there came a time at Hope Sound, and I'm in no way blaming Hope Sound. It was totally my fault. But I was a very busy person. And my children looked good, and that was all that mattered to me. And that's a very subtle form of pride. My children looked real good. I could take them out to meetings, and everybody would admire my holiness family. But my boy, my oldest boy, when he got into his late teens, began to come apart. And when he came apart, my life unraveled as well. I have his permission to share tonight, this afternoon, what I'm saying, or I would not. But Alan rebelled horribly. I have had the privilege, much of my ministry has been a ministry of counseling, and I've counseled a lot of people with a lot of problems. I have never talked to anyone, young or old, so full of horrible bitterness as came out of my son when we finally discovered the problem. I mean people, he was so full of hatred for God and for holiness for those who he felt like had robbed him of his God, of his father. I, d I could not tell you t today some of the things my son pulled off. In his sheer frustration at how he could express his anger and hatred. But I'm telling you, he would have burnt Hope Sound to the ground if he'd have thought there was a 1% chance of getting by with it. He hated the place. He pulled off things that I, like I said, I could not even tell you. I mean almost insane expressions of hatred and bitterness. He got into trouble with the law, serious trouble with the law, and it appeared that he was going to prison. Our, con our communication had begun to break down. Every time we would talk, argument, Everything I said, it seemed he bounced off of it and I bounced off of his reaction. I could see that I was losing my boy. I wrote out my resignation and took it in and it was refused. I would go to God. We'd have a confrontation and my big boy, my man in his late teens, would leave the house in anger and I would go to the place of prayer and I would cry and I'd say, oh God, I'm losing my son. Will you help me somehow? Determined in my heart I was not going to allow it to happen again, and it would. And I don't know all that happened, 
But I know while we were waiting for a trial and it looked like he was on his way to prison and so full of malignant anger and bitterness till I saw no way that I could ever get him back. I remember a night when in my despair, after a confrontation, I walked into the darkened tabernacle, one light shining down upon the altar, and I walked very slowly down that, that aisle and I had my hands out in front of me like this. And in my arms, in my mind, was my boy, far too big for me to carry anymore. But I brought him under the light, and I looked up at my God, and I said, God, I do not know one other single thing to try. I do not know anything else to do. And I bring you my son. Would you undertake somehow? When my son and I, when he would question things and would, would uh, contest principles or positions that we took or standards that we held. I learned very early that I was very clever at arguing. I found that I could ask a few loaded questions and I could nail him to the wall every time. I could make him look like a fool. And I was winning all the arguments and I was losing my boy. And I thought that was winning. I remember very late one night, well after midnight, the phone rang and it was my son. He was working at the rescue squad in Hope Sound, and he'd come out at the end of his shift, and his little truck would not start. Would I come and get him? I got up and dressed, and we lived way up at the north end of Gomez, the very last street on Gomez, if you're familiar with Hope Sound at all. Drove the long Gomez Avenue down through the campus and out to Hope Sound, picked up my son, and we started home. Again, I do not remember what it was all about, but again there was... There was confrontation, and again it became an argument, and something inside of me snapped. I do not know what happened that night. Some have suggested that I had a nervous breakdown. Maybe I did. I don't know. I was under tremendous pressure and tension. I've seen a lot of meanness hidden behind that excuse, and I don't want to take it lightly. I want you to know at the same time my heart goes out to those who have indeed had a nervous breakdown, very much so. I simply do not know what happened that night, but I know something snapped inside of me. All I can say is that it had never happened before and it has never happened since, and it was not the normal response of my heart. But something broke inside, and I began to drive faster and faster and faster and erratically down the road. And I said, son, I cannot talk to you. Every time we talk, it becomes an argument. And my son did what he had to do before I ran into a tree or off into a canal. He's a big boy, and he took the car away from his daddy, and he took us home. And we went into the house. He went to his room. I went to mine. I lay there in bed and I thought, my God, what have I done? What have I done? I have acted, this holiness preacher, I have acted like a fool. I have acted like an insane man. I have acted like a child. How will my son ever respect me again? And I'm going to ask that for just a moment that the tape be turned off, please.
And if you're anyone else taping, would you turn the... My actions that night were unacceptable for someone except it professing any grace at all. People always ask me, Brother Barr, did you profess to be sanctified when that happened? Yes, I did. How do you jive that, Brother Barr? How do you correlate that with holiness? I don't. Do you understand that? I don't. I would give everything I own in this world, and I wish you knew how sincerely I mean that. I would give everything in the world if that were not in my son's memory. I'd give anything in the world if it were not in my memory. It should not have happened. It is inexcusable. But it did happen. And given that it did happen, what do you do? I did the only thing you can do. I went to my God. And I found that for holding this preacher that's blown it, that the mercy of the Lord endureth forever. And I knelt there by the couch and I cried out to my God in shame and reproach and confusion. And he spoke mercy to my heart and peace. And then I got up and with leaden step I went to my boy's room and I opened the door. And there lay my great big handsome son staring at the ceiling. My rebel son, on, apparently on his way to prison, staring at the ceiling, his pillow soaked with tears. And I knelt by his bed, and I said, Son, there is no way that I can cover for what I did tonight. The way I've acted, I know it's going to be very difficult for you to ever respect me again. I'm ashamed. And I've asked God to forgive me. And I'm asking you if you could find it in your heart to forgive your daddy. And with a roar like an animal, my son rolled over and threw his arms around my neck and tumbled out into the floor. And we rolled around in the floor and cried and mingled our tears and hugged. My son is our Sunday school superintendent today. I don't get home to my home church very often, but the last time we were there, I believe, it was that my son and his wife sang the special and God came and honored. There are no impossible cases with our God. And that wayward child that you're praying for, they are not beyond the grace of God. I do not want to make a big production of it. In fact, I feel it would be dangerous to do so. But to this crowd that I have respect for and confidence in, I have tonight a wayward daughter. She's a good girl in many respects, but she's in spiritual trouble, and I would appreciate your prayers for her. But there are no impossible cases with our God. Who are you praying for? What's the devil told you? Hopeless. No, not with God. I think about my granddaddy. My granddaddy's full-blooded Irishman, little short red-headed fella with the Irish temper. He's one of these, I loved him and I hated him at the same time. You ever met anybody like that, you know? And when my mother and father found the Lord, they began to witness to my mother's father, my granddaddy Turner, and he would curse and swear horribly at the very name of Jesus. My mother told me of a time when she was a child at home, a large family in poverty. They had a little chicken coop, and to protect the chickens from the fox and from the hawk, 
My granddaddy kept a loaded 12-gauge shotgun high up on the barn wall where the children couldn't reach it. But one day out there playing, my Uncle Stuart, just a toddler, and, and his sister, maybe a year older, Shirley, they saw that gun and they became curious and they piled up boxes and barrels and they built a stairway and they got down the gun and they began to play with it. And in a horrible, tragic accident, Shirley shot Stuart point-blank range in the stomach and hip with a 12-gauge shotgun, blew his hip away, blew his stomach away. They rushed him to the hospital. My grandfather and grandmother knew nothing of God, nothing whatsoever. When I, years later, as I said, when I'd try to witness to my grandfather, he'd curse me. When I'd witness to my grandmother, she was a good woman. And you'd talk to her about Jesus and she'd say, Oh, that's so sweet, son. Oh, that's so beautiful. But never seemed to understand the implications of the gospel. But Mama said under that incident, my grandfather cried out to the God he didn't know and he knew that the worst thing he did in his mind was drink because when he'd be drunk, he would beat the wife. And, and so he cried out to the God he didn't know and he said, Oh God, if you'll let my little boy live, I'll quit drinking. And against all the odds, Stuart survived, though it left him badly crippled. And my grandfather amazingly kept his promise. For several years, did not drink. In fact, he had another little child now, a little toddler, a little boy named Leslie. Several years later, he was working in another town, coming home on the weekends, riding with some other men, and they'd been paid, and they were coming home. The other men stopped at a bar, invited my granddaddy to go in, and he said, no, I haven't drank a drop in several years now. But they pressed him, and he gave in, and he went inside, and while he was sitting at the bar drinking this first drink, his little toddler, Leslie, stepped out in front of a car and was killed instantly by a hit-and-run driver that was never apprehended. So that when my granddaddy arrived home, he found his little toddler, now Leslie, dead. He walked out into the field behind the house and he spit into the sky. And he shook his fist at God and cursed him for everything he could think of. Dared him to come down like a man and pick on a man instead of a child. You can't get saved after you do something like that, can you, Brother Barr? Yeah, you can. The mercy of the Lord endureth forever but the years went by and it didn't seem like a possibility my mother would try to witness to my granddaddy but he would swear and curse I would at times as a teenager try to witness to him and he would curse me and the years went by and I married and became a pastor and one year I was taking a group from my church down to Hope Sound Camp Meeting and I I'm actually getting a little ahead of my story. I guess I should mention my grandmother. My grandmother, a good woman, but didn't seem to understand the gospel. There came a time while I was still a teen, before I married, we were being stationed. My daddy was being posted to Japan, and we'd already shipped all of our luggage and our furniture across, and now we had a couple weeks to travel across the country and arrive in California and fly across. We went to Pennsylvania, where my, where my grandfather and grandmother lived, and when I got there, my grandmother, I was just a teen, but my grandmother said, well, son, I've started going to church. I said, well, that's wonderful. I turned out she was a big, high steeple church downtown, probably not much gospel there, but I was glad she was going to church, now an old woman. She said, well, you'd have to know her. She had a magnificent personality. She was very persuasive. She said, well, I told the pastor that my grandson was coming to visit me and that he was a preacher, and you're preaching this Sunday night. 
<laughs> in this great big church, probably the biggest church I've ever preached in. I went there and I preached and I gave an altar call and then in horrors looked down they had no altar. My grandmother came forward and we went to an inquiry room and I stayed there to make sure they did it right and they did it right and my grandmother found as an old woman that the mercy of the Lord endureth forever and her face lit up with the assurance of salvation. Only a few days later, we left and started our track across the United States, arrived in California, flew across to Japan, only been in Japan a couple weeks, still living in the guest house, waiting for permanent housing. My, a few days after we left, my grandmother and grandfather went to their, to their winter home in Florida. And now, one day, only saved, maybe six weeks, my aged grandmother went down, crossed Highway 1 to check her mail, getting just a little forgetful, looking at a letter she'd received, stepped out in front of a truck and was killed instantly. Only been saved a few weeks. The mercy of the Lord endureth forever. But my granddaddy became even more embittered, and now the years have gone by, and I'm headed for Hope Sound. And I told some of the people with me, I said, I'd like to stop and run in and visit my, my grandfather and my uncles for just a few moments. But when I went into my uncle's house, he said, Albert, we're glad to see you. Your granddaddy is down in the swamp, drunk, been drunk for weeks. He's going to die of exposure down there. You know how he is. We go down and try to persuade him. He pulls a gun or a knife and curses us. But you, he always had a lot of respect for you, which surprised me. He always cursed me. But they said, would you go down and talk to him? I said that I would. I went down. I said, Granddaddy, I didn't know. He looked like he was dead already. I didn't know if he'd know me, but he did. I said, Granddaddy, it's Albert. I said, you're going to die down here, Granddaddy. He said, I know it. I said, Granddaddy, I don't want you to die down here. He said, I don't want to die. I said, Granddaddy, would you let me take you back up to South Carolina to Mama and let us do something for you? I thought he would curse again, but instead he said, yeah, I'll go. I said, Granddaddy, I have some people with me. I've got to take Father South. But if you'll put some things in your truck, I'll be back in the morning and I'll take you north to, to see if Mama can help you. And he said, I'll be ready. I didn't know if he'd remember five minutes after I was gone that I'd ever been there. But the next day I came back from Hope Sound, brought my local preacher with me to help drive. We got there and to my surprise, my grandfather had thrown some stuff in his old truck and he was ready to go. We crawled in and we started, we started north. I'd called my mother and told her we were coming. People, I did something that day I've never done before, never done since, and you might not would have done, and you might be right. I did the best you knew how. Have you ever just done the best you knew how? My daddy began to have, my granddaddy began to have DTs. He'd scream and thrash and kick around in the car, and I was afraid he was going to die, and I didn't want him to die. And I stopped at a beer joint not once but several times and bought him beer. I didn't want him to die. I did the best you knew how. We finally, late that evening, got him home. Mama was waiting for us and put him to bed. She had a doctor's appointment the next day for him, but he, even during the night, would have DTs. Large house. He was back in the bedroom on the backside. I was out praying for my granddaddy. Wee hours of the morning, and I had an experience I've never had like before or since. Praying there, maybe two or three in the morning, God witnessed to my heart that he had saved my granddaddy. I got up and laughed and cried and walked around and tried to sit down and couldn't and I'd go outside and walk around. I hadn't even seen my granddaddy. I just laughed and cried. But my mother had slipped into the room to check on him and found him very weak but cold sober. And he wanted to pray. And my granddaddy, 
who had shook his fist at God and spit into the heavens and cursed God, who lived all his life in wickedness, found that the mercy of the Lord endureth forever. Those are not impossible situations you are praying for, people. That loved one, that wayward husband or wife, that lost grandparent, that wayward child, they are not beyond God's help. That backslider could have tell you one more and we'll go. I've tried to mention earlier in this revival, that this camp meeting, that my, the wondrous conversion of my mama, a wicked woman who knew nothing about God, but when she gave her heart to Jesus, she became a saint. She was the saint of my life. She was an old-fashioned, holiness, shouting woman. My mother and father were always walking in far more light than they were hearing preached, always. Knew nothing about God. Didn't know there were different denominations, but God delivered her from alcohol and delivered her from tobacco and she quit her job. I remember back in those days, we still had a TV. We didn't know anything. They didn't have TV guide in those days. They printed in the paper what was going to be on TV. And my mother would tear that page out of the paper and tape it on the wall by the television. And as anything came on TV, either in the programming or the sponsors, that troubled her conscience and God gave her a tender conscience, she would scratch that one off. And woe be unto any of us caught watching anything Mom had done scratched off. <laughs> but she kept scratching off and scratching off and scratching off. It got down to uh, in a given week we could watch Oral Roberts and Howdy Doody. <laughs> and we weren't real sure which was doing us the most good. <laughs> and we finally... My mother, and looked, my mother and daddy got together and said, you know, this thing's hardly worth having. And they got rid of their TV before they ever knew there was another human on the face of the earth that had a problem with television. And I hear people that have heard good preaching for years and never see anything. Something's wrong somewhere. But this saintly mother... <laughs> enjoy yourself, brother, it's fine. <laughs> but my mama... My mama had the most simple childlike faith of any woman I ever knew. Every so often, about once a week, in fact, I pray, oh God, I need some money. <laughs> My mama never prayed that way. She'd say, Lord, I need $26.43. And she would get $26.43. I saw it over and over again as a teen. I'd wake up in the wee hours of the night and I'd hear my mommy in the place of prayer. My mama was a saint. My wife, my wife, my mother was a major influence on the life of my wife. She was as godly a woman as I've ever known. But I met the woman that God had for me, and we fell in love and courted and married and moved away, and the years went by, and I did not know it, but in our home church there was a major split. And in the hurt and the accusations and the misunderstandings of that split, my father and my mother were wounded. I'm not excusing them, people. But I must tell you, there's going to be a lot of people in here. And I would not know for years whether my daddy was dead or alive. We are divorced. And this is my new husband. I am no longer Mrs. Barr. I have a new name. My wife and I reeled back to the car got in the car and started the long trip home. And we would pull over to the side of the interstate. 
and we would fall into each other's arms, and we would cry and cry and cry. I have a very strong conviction that when you're supposed to be at work, you're at work. But there were days that I was not even able to go to work. I nearly lost my soul. I thought, if my saintly mother can't make it, what's the use of me trying? But somewhere in my desperation, I discovered that when your mother and your father let you down, that the Lord hasn't let you down. And so he pulled me through. But I must tell you, there was an emptiness and a void in my heart and life. A few months later, my wife and I moved to Hope Sound to begin our teaching career there. The man my mother had married was himself a military man, and in a few weeks, they were posted to the other side of the world, to the Philippines. And so the years went by, and my children grew up and never saw their grandmother. Once in a while, maybe on the holidays, I would call the other side of the world to speak to my mother. But if the conversation even drifted towards spiritual things, you could feel the walls going up. Can't talk about that. And then there came a day when I got the word that my mother had been diagnosed with cancer. The military flew her to Hawaii for further tests, and there it was found that the cancer was extensive, deadly, that the prognosis was pretty much hopeless. The military said they would give her, she would have surgery in any military hospital or a number of selected civilian hospitals, and my mother chose to have the surgery done in Orlando, Florida, so she could, for a last time, be near her son. And so there came a day after all those years when my uncle drove up to our little house on James Street in Florida, and out got my mother. My mother had always been a beautiful woman. But now the years of sin and the ravages of the disease had taken their toll. She was stooped and aged. She was yellow with the disease. She was cadaverous. She looked like what she was, a dying woman. She was skin and bones except for her stomach, which was bloated by the disease. I do not want to be ugly today, but she smelled of cancer. We kissed and cried and hugged. My daddy, who we had established contact with after a few years, my daddy came. And I saw my mother get my daddy aside and tell him she was sorry for her part in the tragedy. My mother came to my Sunday school class. We had a large Sunday school class, 80 to 100 of middle-aged adults, and it really functioned as a church. My mother stood in that congregation and cried, told how she had one time known God. He'd been so real and wonderful to her, but she had played the prodigal, and now she was facing death, and she did not know God. And would they pray for her? A few days later, my mother, my uncle came back and took my mother to Orlando, and they began to prepare her for surgery. And the night before the surgery, my backslidden mama reached out to the God that she'd walked away from and discovered that the mercy of the Lord endureth forever. And God forgave her and took his prodigal back into the family. And with the assurance of her acceptance with God, that simple childlike faith she had had before sprang back into existence. And she reached out for her healing. 
And so when the doctors came in the next morning, she said, you're going to discover that God has healed me and I no longer have cancer. I'm not talking about someone who thought they had cancer people. And they said, are you saying, Mrs. Jones, that you do not want the surgery? She said, no, I want the surgery. I want you to look, but you're going to find God's healed me. And so they cut her open and sewed her up, but when they came, she came to, they said, Mrs. Jones, you're full of scar tissue, but we can't find any cancer anywhere. That's been 12 years ago. My mother could probably outrun me today, which is not real good, but it's pretty good for an old woman. What I'm saying is this, people. I know this hasn't been a sermon, and I've already gone much longer than I intended to. But what I'm trying to say is this, people. The mercy of the Lord endureth forever. Your case is not hopeless. Your child is not hopeless. Your husband or wife is not hopeless. Your need is not beyond the ability of our God. And so I would ask that with me in this revival, we would reach out in faith for our loved ones and friends in those situations that the devil's told us is impossible. And let's believe God for miracles because he still does it and because his mercy is sufficient. I know, as I said when I begin this sermon, that there's another side to this coin, and I know that. And there are scars, and there are hurts, and there are entanglements, and every day you live in sin, you pay a price for that. I know that. But I also today just want to revel in the mercy of the Lord endures forever. People, I am not talking about a hypocrisy. I am not a secret hypocrite. I do my best to practice what I preach and to live right before God. But I must tell you, I often need his mercy. I often need his mercy. I fall on my face. I need his mercy. And I've never found it wanting when I needed it. And so to you, if you're hurting either for your own need or for a loved one, I would ask that God would help us today to take renewed faith and claim the promise, the mercy of the Lord endureth forever. Would you stand with me? Heavenly Father, I want you to know I'm glad to have this gospel to preach. <laughs> I'm thankful that I have this gospel to preach. And in this congregation, there are no doubt many representing unsaved loved ones, unsaved children. Some have gone into almost unimaginable sin and entanglements, and we know that. And the devil would want us to despair and to give up. But, oh God, would you help us today to catch a new glimpse of the magnificence of your mercy, of your great mercy, oh God. And with David, we say, the mercy of the Lord endureth forever. And would you help us to reach out renewed prayer and faith and confidence that you would work in behalf of our unsaved loved ones and friends. We know, O oh God, that we are free moral agents and that these young people ultimately make the choice themselves. But, O oh God, would you help us to do our part to carry them to the throne? And would you move in their lives and make them sick of their sin and help them, O oh God, in their need to catch a glimpse that even in their prodigality and wickedness, waywardness, that the mercy of the Lord endures and that they can come back to the Father. They'll find him with open arms to welcome them into the kingdom, into the family. Would you help us to take new courage, to walk through this life with new confidence? And would you bring some of these things to pass even in this camp meeting? For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen.
Thank you for listening to Convention Pulpit, a ministry of Inner Church Holiness Convention, featuring Wesleyan voices past and present. For more sermons or for more information, visit www.ihconvention.com. This ministry is made possible through the financial support of our listeners. You may give online at ihconvention.com or send your donation to IHC, Post Office Box 99, New Berlin, Pennsylvania, 17855 USA. Yeah.